Welcome back to TechM Report. We welcome Vahe and Mike from the Portal team working on blockchain-facilitated financial transactions, something that the technology was always intended for. Truly insightful discussion here on things like internal team communication approaches, user testing, and a fundraising process, how to go about this effectively and without too much stress and distraction. One of our best podcasts to date, so enjoy and thanks to the Portal team. Dear Vahe, dear Mike, nice to meet you. Uh, we have an exciting kind of talk ahead of us. We're going to be discussing Portal. I think this is the first time uh, I'm hosting someone doing um, from the crypto or from the blockchain space at least. So that's kind of very interesting. And uh, we've talked previously uh, on this on this matter, and uh, I thought it was a great solution. Something that something that uh, people have been talking a lot about, but I haven't seen much actually in this space. So uh, should be very interesting to hear. What you folks are up to, uh, but let's start. Uh, well, let's start a bit of uh, with with the backgrounds. Tell us a bit about the background and um, how you uh, respectively uh, pursued entrepreneurship path, so say. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with. So my background is in computer science. It's also finance and information management. Uh, I'm a patented inventor, uh, design thinking expert. But I kind of like taking a step back from that. Uh, I started entrepreneurship because I think growing up. That's what I saw as the default in my family. My dad was doing his own thing. My mom was doing her own thing. And kind of the default that was cemented in me was that I need to grow up and do my own thing. Um, but I didn't write, start right away. I used to work at Microsoft. And what I saw is that the corporate world is not really fit for me because uh, a lot of things take a lot of time to happen in corporate world. And there's a lot of politics involved. And I was at a stage in my life that I wanted the freedom to experiment, to learn, to do a lot of things. Uh, to maybe fail a couple of times without having major effects. And and that's where I kind of thought, okay, entrepreneurship is, entrepreneurship is the way to go. And I remember when I was at university, there was a course we had, which was called Design Thinking for Business Innovation. And this was at university as close as you, get, you could get to entrepreneurship because um, it was a nine-month-long project, eight people that didn't know each other before. And, and um, But you were still in the context of university, so you couldn't fail, like, in a very big proportions, you, you you didn't have to kind of raise money or do these kind of things. You had a budget, but everything else, like talking to stakeholders, talking to customers, experimenting, testing ideas, all of those things were just as similar as they are in the entrepreneurship world. And I did that, and then I kind of figured out, okay, that's kind of, that's the kind of action that I want to have in the next years in my life. And so I started started building right out of the university. Sounds good. Sounds good. And I'm guessing the uh, growing up in a kind of a you know, entrepreneurship world already was not too too much of a stress, which is very good. I guess we, we got entrepreneurship yeah, exactly. is a bit of a challenge and not straightforward all the time. So uh, you have a good experience there. Uh, and uh, Mike, what about you? Actually, really similar. So my dad has his own company. Uh, my mother's family, weirdly enough, um, there's a common cleaning product in the UK that's actually named after my great granddad. Um uh, it's actually a toilet cleaner. I won't kind of go into details. <laughs> um, but yeah, his name is Harry Pickup and the toilet cleaner is called Harpick. Um, but yeah, so both sides of my family um, are entrepreneurs. Um, I, yeah, similar to Vahe, I kind of, it was a default for me. Um, I've always liked building things. I think um, when I was in high school, um, me and a mate of mine used to run land parties and we would promote them uh, in the most obnoxious ways possible um to put like fake ads around our high school about like students dying in quake um which is obviously an ad for quake the video game 
um, and charge people money to uh, to use our computer network to play games against each other. Um, and yeah, I've kind of similar to Vahe, I, I, I tried a bunch of different things kind of over the years. I've always enjoyed making things. Um, I like, I think it, I really, I enjoy it when somebody likes something that I've built. Um, and yeah, so I've kind of always been on the lookout for like things that would uh, be good products. And I, I tried a few things that didn't work. And then I ended up running um, uh, my own company for five years, which built a um, cryptographic verification product for websites. Basically, I became frustrated with GoDaddy and thought I could build something better. And I did. And that kind of made entrepreneurship less of something that I double in and more of a career. Yeah, very nice. Um... <clears throat> Must have been a lot of fun. I know the, the building, the building part is, of course, one of the best uh, best parts about this, of course. And I'm guessing you had a lot of marketing experimentation already in high school with those those type of uh, community building initiatives. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's funny. It's I think I'm I'm I have some marketing skills, but I think I'm better at the building. So I like to kind of um, you know I think one of the skills of being an entrepreneur is also realizing that you can't do everything yourself. Um, and realizing when to talk to people and how to talk to people. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, I, I I need help with the marketing part, I'd say. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. And um, I mean, you, you again. I mean, this is a huge amount of experience we gathered gathered over the years, and uh, that's uh, I'm sure it's very helpful. But and how how did you folks uh, how did your folks meet? And uh, you know how how do the skills complement uh, each other here? So we met, we're both part of the uh, alumni of Entrepreneur First. Entrepreneur First is a talent investor. They started off in the UK, but kind of expanded globally. Now they're, I think, in Singapore and Northern America, as well as some, some other parts of Europe. Uh, and so both of us did Entrepreneur First in different different years, different cohorts. Uh, and there was an event in, um, in May of this year in London. And that's where we met. Um, we started kind of chatting together, sprinting together, brainstorming together ideating and, and we kind of figured out okay we're on the same wavelength in terms of where we think the future is headed uh, and so start working together on on portal and um kind of like in terms of what our skill complementary skill set both of us have tech backgrounds which i think helps a lot with uh, being aware of what is feasible technically uh, in terms of building i think that's one of the things that sometimes causes a lot of conflict is like the ceo is expecting too much from the cto not understanding how, what is what is actually the tech, what the tech is actually able to do. Uh, and then um, my focus has been more on the on the design side growing up uh, on the on how can we get to user fast? How can we kind of ideate with the user, learn from user? Uh, I have over like 200 hours of user experience, uh, user testing experience. And um, and Mike has been more on the building side. And so I think those things are crucial when they come together at the early days, because it allows us to be quick and to build and kind of prioritize things that we need to kind of find answers to our hypothesis whatever that may be at the time okay sounds good i mean uh we we always kind of look very positively and um sort of mixed co-founding teams i mean people coming from different backgrounds even different ge geographies i think that's that's a huge that's a huge plus any anything that you would say is kind of is a bit of a challenge uh with this or is it just uh all all, all great it's it's never everything all great, I think, but uh, I think the most important thing is is that maybe is underrated a lot of times is communication. Uh, 
mixed backgrounds, have mixed cultures. There's a lot of mix in different levels, um, but I think communication is key. And what we have done, in my opinion, from the early days is that we've been very good at communicating with each other. Uh, whenever we had challenges, we would just you know talk to each other, try to find a solution that does not only work individually, but also in terms of company. Um, and I think having that in mind, communicating clearly and having that mindfulness that uh, every person is different and different culture different backgrounds. And so understanding the other person's point of view is also super crucial. And um, when we communicate, like we kind of try to really respect the person as they are and try to uh, find the best solution. And at the same time, um, other things that we, I think we've done great is that our source of truth is not me or Mike. Our source of truth when the problems arise is always the customer. Like if we have, if we are if we do not agree on a point, it's not like, okay, it's going to be what I'm saying, or it's going to be what you're saying is like, okay, how can we figure out what is the right answer to this question? And I think we've been very, very creative in finding ways to find answers to that, to those questions fast. Um, yeah. But I would say, I would say communication has been, has been key. Mike, what, what do you think? I, I was nodding my head like a maniac there. Um, <laughs> I think um, Samson, probably the, the best thing that we do is, when we are looking at things differently, it's basically we're on a journey to find out what the truth is. Um, so, and a lot of the times, like, it's actually funny, I think um, Vahe is a mature young person and I'm a very energetic old person. So he often really considers things and I kind of go on my gut a little bit more. And it's actually funny, there's been like cases, you know, I was actually thinking about this. Um, you know, we had an email from a VC and I was such an important VC and it was like, I really wanted to get back to him as soon as possible. And I was like really pushing like, hey, can we just, can we do this tonight? I really want to impress this guy. And I realized like uh, talking to Vahe, I hadn't actually read the email properly. And he wasn't kind of, the, the way I interpreted the communication wasn't actually correct. And that's not about, like one person being right and the other person being wrong. It's actually about we together, we found out what the truth is. And it turns out that he's not asking for a particular result. He's asking, you know, what we think between a couple of different results. And yeah, like it's, um, it's if you kind of imagine like the mental image is if we have a discussion about something that we don't feel the same on, it's not like a, um, you know, a boxing contest. It's literally we're on a journey together to find out what the truth is. And we're looking out and looking at all the information possible to, tr to try and get to um, what the best outcome will be. Yeah, no, that's think, great. Yeah. Yeah, please just go to add, Just to add, add a brief, brief thing to what Mike's just saying, I think what is very important that you rarely see in corporate, corporate world is people taking accountability of mistakes. It's always, you know, it's, it's very rare. It's, it has to be a very healthy culture to, for you to see that. And we are still a team of two, but we have done that from day one. Like we have, I, I can remember probably six, seven times where I was wrong. I was like, okay, Mike, my mistake, you know, we need to move on to something different. And he has done the same. So I think um, communication and taking taking accountability of, of, and not trying to, like the goal for us is not try to be right, is about to find the truth. And, um, you know, you can make mistakes and that's fine as, as far as, as soon as you can kind of like admit that and then move on to the next thing. I think that's the biggest thing for us. No, I think this is great. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think we have had our own uh, share of kind of experience with this. So sometimes we, 
we in our team we get an email as well and one one reads it one way and the other one reads it the other way and it, it's always it's a huge it's a huge plus when you kind of uh, have a couple of perspective on things uh, but let me ask another kind of question on this uh, do you, if you have any other best practices please share on this because i think it's a huge very very important topic for teams i mean it's a, having a team is great but obviously this is uh, you know uh, you need to have kind of mm -hmm. dynamics where people understand each other and there are kind of uh, rules of the road or something like that is there anything uh, any kind of written policies or kind of things that you kind of agreed upon or came to an agreement on how you know communication you know timeliness things like that or is it just outside of the thought of there is something that we do naturally um which uh i think i originally found out through um a, a y combinator youtube talk and it has a silly silly name the, the name is nonviolent communication, which is a silly name because obviously communication is not violence, but what it means is non-confrontational communication. So I do this naturally, and I think we've both started doing it over the course of running Portal, um, which is you tell the other person what you're concerned about. So rather than saying we should do this because you know we need to do that because if we don't, this will happen. You just say that you're concerned about some some something bad happening. And there may actually be many different solutions that can resolve that thing you're concerned about. So it's 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 focusing on the thing you're concerned about rather than a particular solution. And yeah, that way your mind is kind of open to different outcomes. And how much uh and how much kind of how um how so let's say direct is that communication versus how much diplomacy is that? I mean, if you have a concern about something, do you kind of raise it? Or if yeah, you have a concern yeah, I mean, about it, then you kind of go ahead about this diplomatically and like insinuations and hints and, you know. It, it's like not, it, it is direct. You say, I'm, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I'm concerned, you know, we won't be able to do this by this time or this investor needs this particular thing from us or, you know, whatever it is you're concerned about, you, you very much say it directly what you're concerned about. There's no hinting. It's really important to kind of, I think, if you keep something in your heart for a long time, it can kind of, um, it's not productive and it will like the stress kind of will affect everything you do. So you say what's kind of on your mind. But you're you're just literally saying what you're concerned about, and what the practices practitioners of nonviolent communication would say is that because you're just saying what you're concerned about, it's not something that anyone can actually disagree with because you're literally it's a statement of your concerns, rather than saying if you're talking about a particular solution, then that that can be something that's about agreement and disagreement. You're just if it's just a statement of um, yeah, of, of that concern, then the other person, clearly it's true because you're, you're saying you're concerned about something and the other person might also be concerned about the same thing, but might have a better way of doing that. Um, yeah. Or it might not actually be such a concern, um, but you're there to kind of alleviate that concern rather than go towards a particular solution. No, this is yeah, great. And I think yeah, I think just to add to that as a few things. Um, first of all, we I think consciously both of us understand that is when we're concerned, we're not concerned about the person in front of us. We're concerned about a certain topic. So we know it's not personal and we try to find a solution together to that. And I think the second thing is um, we are not afraid to ask questions from each other. Like it's there have been countless times where Mike is like, can you elaborate on this point? I do not really understand what you're saying. And that could be because of my shortcomings in English language as, not my, as it's not my mother tongue, or it could be for other reasons. 
Um, but I think what that does is that once you kind of like get used to asking more questions is that you try, you start to understand the other person's points far better because um, otherwise you're just making 10 assumptions about what they're thinking, which is most of the time not true. And so uh, I think those two things are another part of the good practice that we do is that if we're not clear what the other person is saying, we just, we just ask questions and then we get to the bottom and then we try to figure out how we can move forward from there. Yeah, no, this is amazing. I mean, this is the kind of type of stuff you don't come across in uh, books or anything. And again, team dynamics are very important exactly, yeah. for any startup. Right? <clears throat> so uh, let's let's get back to script. I can talk about this stuff for for much longer, but uh, let's get back to what we're on the to the agenda. I mean, um, you founded Portal. What was the kind of the aha moment, so to say, behind it? Uh, you know, why did you decide to pursue Portal and uh, that that idea? It's it's an interesting story because we start like as I said we met in in May and we started brainstorming together and at the time we kind of had a v vision that we want to create a new social media, uh, one that rewards creators. I think this idea has been pitched probably ten thousand times already, and uh, we were thinking okay we can use the blockchain technology to enable that and to make sure that the right people get the money and and the content owners stay content owners and no other party owns their content and so on, and so we we started with that very utopic vision uh, and started working our way backwards we were like okay what do if, if this is the vision what do we need to do to get there and so we understood that in in web3 a lot of a lot of things are different from an infrastructure and architectural perspective and so uh, in order for you to as a as a user to part participate in web3 you need to have a wallet to access web3 and so we started we got to the wallet point and we're like okay this is our gateway to web3 and uh, we figured out that the wallets are extremely poor like the user experience is extremely poor they're not safe they're very very much focused on speculation and so we're like okay if the wallet experience sucks this much how can we ever expect enough people to kind of get on board with web3 and so that's where we started kind of like ideating on, the, okay, how can we make a better wallet? And we actually, you know, this was not something where we thought, you know, we're going to sit and think wallet experience is bad. We actually went out and had people who, um, who, who, who we kind of convinced to install a wallet, get on onto Web3, and we observed their experience and we figured out, okay, it's not working for them. And so that's where we started uh, working on the better wallet. And then later on, um, we kind of identified the bigger picture problem, which was that uh, international transfers are costly, take a lot of time, and you can use a technology like blockchain if you implement it right in the right way that people can use. And there's a lot of value that you can create for, for people. I see, I see. And this is, uh, uh, you, you are in the sphere of financial services. And uh, exactly. what's, the, yeah. what's the key challenge here? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, but just to elaborate on that point. Yeah, to kind of elaborate is uh, the, currently people pay about like 6% fee when they want to send money overseas to family and friend, friends, um, and it can take up to five days for the money to arrive. Um, UN set the goal in sustainable development goals 10C, if you look it up, it's like we want to reduce inequalities, we want to uh, make sure that international remittances do not cost more than 3% by 2030, and uh, we don't believe that the banks can, can achieve that actually, and the non-bank solutions either. And so... What we are doing is is trying to solve that, and we can probably accelerate that by three to five years um, because we will reduce the fee to less than one percent, uh, and the money arrives instantly. Now, what what challenges we face? Uh, there are a few and far in between. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones uh, that we are kind of tackling right now is trying to figure out what corridors we want to start with because um, blockchain technology is like is not widely blockchain. Sorry, but the crypto is not widely adopted worldwide. Like the liquidity differs in different locations. So you cannot have one solution or one size fits all for everyone. And so for us, it's like trying to 
balance the trade-off of okay regulation compliance liquidity and starting with the right creators so that we can we can create the value that we kind of promise the customers to create i think that's the that's one of the biggest challenges that we have to fix uh, or uh, kind of like overcome and um yeah mike if you have any others you can add add to those no i think that's perfect i mean it's um everybody's sending money right like it blows my mind that in 2022 people are still waiting for money to arrive we can send um you know huge sums of money instantly um the transaction fees are you know less than pennies um less than one penny in fact um and i think you know blockchain offers a lot of promise here but so far a lot of the existing implementations have been very unforgiving so people have been um uh, hesitant to use blockchain because there's been no verification of where your money will go before you hit the send button um so yeah. my kind of background in building cryptographic products Barhe has got this huge design thinking uh, background and it's really um applying that lens of i guess like user sympathy um to blockchain and creating something that, that's a that's a real product for people rather than for blockchain enthusiasts yeah, I did. I didn't know this was that was an SDG goal, if I remember the the abbreviation correctly. But um, you know, from, from outside, it seems. I mean, it's it's an information transaction, information flow from one point to another, and of course, what would have a question why that information flow would need to take five days or be charged six percent, as you mentioned. I'm guessing on average. Um, is it something you think the banks are just sitting up upon as a kind of a profit generator? a stream and then when the time comes i don't remember if you mentioned 2025 or 2030 uh and that point they just will switch switch just shorten the time lag and then we're we're all good or do you think there are more kind of operational issues why it takes longer and why it costs more i don't think banks can flip the switch um i i don't think we have a huge great track record of achieving sdgs uh by the time that was kind of like the goal set for um we have like if you look at other other areas it's just a similar story um green airports by 2030 are we going to hit that i'm not sure uh autonomous driving by 2050 let's see like a lot of a lot of these things um so i don't think it's it's like a switch that can can happen i think there are a few issues that exist with current current um systems um outdated systems um it's like sending money overseas is not is not a very simple task if you use the existing networks of banks because uh, the money is not like okay we're just going to you know call some person and the money is going to be there the money is usually uh, you know central bank is involved and then uh, reserves are exchanged and so the, a lot of canceling out has to happen for the money to arrive at the location and so um and so it's 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 an it's a huge infrastructural change that the banks need to make on their on their uh, part to make that happen using blockchain that's the first thing, uh, and they cannot. They have improved the system as much as they could in the in the years, I think. Um, and it's not the main revenue generator for banks. International transfers are not the, what banks make money on. And so, um, I think it's it's kind of like if you look at it, the reason why startups exist is that they come, they kind of come, they start up, and then they they are faster than the existing corporates who are very slow to change because. Because of every other like hierarchies in the in the corporate world and so on and so forth, and so I think it's a similar story. And um, I don't bet on banks to to change uh, fast. Um, any change that has to happen at a global level takes time. And 
I, there are a lot of initiatives on the bank side. The CBDC, I think we've heard about that. Um, the central bank, uh, digital currency, and a lot of different things happening. But the honest to your the honest answer to your question is like I'm not really sure if the banks would be able to flip that switch very quickly. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, I have a couple of questions on regulations part, uh, but mm -hmm. when you're building this, and as you mentioned, you know, central banks are you know sit on top of the current uh, current system because you know uh, it's kind of a policy making tool, so to say. Um, are you kind of building for uh, a flow where central bank has a part in this in some way or the other as well, or you know how are you considering that? Because I'm guessing. Uh, there are a lot of stakeholders here, and uh, an important one is the central bank, of course, and the oversight and those things. Uh, are you leaving space for that for that oversight to happen also via portal? Uh, I, I think it's you know there there are few there are people in our in our community like the Web three community that believe banks are going to be obsolete in two years. We don't believe that. We don't think you know banks are going to go away. They may go away at some point, but we we're not we 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 don't think we should replace them altogether, right? It's it's a it's an inherently complex word, and there are a lot of relationships that are kind of kind of like intertwined. And it's we're sure that we are not gonna you know we are not gonna flip the switch and be like okay from tomorrow on every transaction is gonna be blockchain based. It's not it's just not gonna work because of all the policy regulation and so on and so forth. And so I think for us it's been. Um, how can we be functional? And I think this is what a lot of companies lack is that how can we functional? How can we be functional uh, very early in the existing atmosphere? Like how can we add value in the existing atmosphere? And there are concerns that the banks have, there are concerns that regulatory, the regulatory bodies have is like, okay, where does the money come? Where does the money go? As if, you know, are, are we involved in any kind of uh, money laundering activities and so on and so forth? And I think, um, we have addressed those stuff in in our capacity at the moment, which is you know we we make sure that it's clear where where the money who's sending money to whom, which is a huge step towards compliance. Um, and going forward, we're going to look into how can we evolve and how we can potentially even uh, cooperate with the existing uh, stakeholders in the in the ecosystem to to make sure that uh, transfers can be done in the right way. Because it's not only that it's a great opportunity to start a company, but it's also blockchain using the lock, right blockchain the transfers are greener it's better for the planet to use that as opposed to uh, the wire transfers for instance and so these are the things we focus on and um, all of that starts with creating something that works for the user and so that's the that's the area we focus on more is like nailing that peer-to-peer -peer transfers re regardless of where you are geographically and then once we have more resources we can kind of try to expand in adjacent markets which are like okay b2b transfers uh what what do we need to kind of make sure that we're compliant in those areas um and and yeah that's that's kind of like the more it's it's a, it's a little bit noisy atmosphere at the moment but as we are very open to working with regulators policymakers to make sure that um we can create an atmosphere that works for everyone here yeah and uh you know, financial services is a regulated, uh, regulated sector. I mean, there are others like healthcare a lot of times. Any general advice to founders working in these spaces, how to approach this matter of regulations and all the, you know, a lot of times there are bottlenecks, a lot of times there are inefficiencies, a lot yeah. of times there are challenges on productivity side and so on and so forth. Any mm -hmm. any advice on that score? How to, how for people, how to be, how to think about this for other founders? I, I think two main themes is like, in my opinion, research is not scalable. So don't be afraid to ask questions from people who have done the research. I think that's far more scalable. Um, listening 
to people who are, who are working closely. We, we remember this because we kind of read a report that was created by checkout.com a few months ago. Um, they work closely with regulators. And so they kind of uh, summarize what's the, what's the current state and uh, what needs to happen. It's obviously just one perspective, but if you take a few reports and you have multiple perspective of what's going to happen. So I think um, Googling, doing your research, but also asking, don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions from a lot of people um, who have done their, their jobs. Now, identifying those people in itself is a bit of a challenge to, to know who to trust, yeah. uh, but I kind of like trust that the founders should be able to, to do that. I see. I see. And uh, kind of let's let's get back to Portal a bit. Uh, what's uh, at which stage is the company at right now? I mean, wh where are you guys at, and what's the what's the longer term vision, so to say? So right now we're in uh, user testing. Um, so we we believe we have the most uh, the best onboarding, the best transaction history, and the best funds transfer of any wallet in Web three. Um, where we'll be doing a, a public beta um, in the first quarter of next year. Um, and yeah, right now it's um, we, we kind of have these sessions where we get someone to install the wallet, um, answer questions and kind of gather, um, as Vahe always says, kind of like feedback from the entire cohort of alpha testers. So not kind of focusing on any, my kind of uh, gut as an engineer is if someone complains about something, I want to fix it straight away. Um, but we're in this stage where we're really kind of going out to a big group of users to get um, and, and try and find the themes of user feedback and um, act on those um, uh, before, um, we go out for a public launch. And that's also been really good as well because we've got some really very positive feedback from users, um, which will probably be on our website by the time you read this. But um, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, advice to other founders would be go out and test your product with real people as soon as possible. Yeah, and, and just to give, like we've tested in our private alpha, we've sent, I think, something about like 50 bucks over 70,000 kilometers worldwide around the globe. And uh, the whole fee we paid was less than one cent for those transfers. And I think that was for us very uh, powerful because kind of saw, okay, this thing is working now. We need to figure out the bits that need to be kind of implemented still, but uh, just seeing the product in the work, uh, in, in the work kind of like in the production would um, seeing people are able to send money back and forth is, has been very empowering for us. Um, what Mike said, like, I think, and I think this probably comes up later on, but it was very important for us from day one to kind of, find the shortest pathway we can have to get to user testing and get feedback. I think there is nothing worse than building nine months, 12 months, and then going out and see that your product either doesn't work or you just spend a lot of time work, uh, building something that you know people are not going to use. And so um, our early feedbacks, we kind of focus on the core functionality of, that we want to get, test, uh, get tested, um, focus on usability testing, and um, that helped us that helped us kind of gather a lot of a lot of feedback and know which parts we did great, which parts we messed up, and we can now go and fix those stuff after the test. Okay, sounds good. I mean, uh, <clears throat> it's very interesting. Do talk a bit about more a, a bit more about the user testing thing, uh, user testing stage. But uh, can you just share how how the approach was, how to identify users, yeah, um, how to ask questions. I mean, uh, you know, mm -hmm. how much I'm guessing sometimes it might be scientific, sometimes it's less so, but just just do share a couple of, you know, a, yeah, a so, bit of advice here. So um, I think the, the main 
thing you need to figure out first is that what is what is what what are you testing? That's the, I think the biggest question you need to answer at the at the front before anything happens. And so for us, it was usability testing. We wanted to know if users uh, are able to use our product. And so once we knew that, we knew who we need to target because uh, we don't have. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We still haven't done the on on ramping and off ramping. That means um, if if we kind of break down the process of sending money through us is like. You sign up, you open a wallet, you exchange your fiat currency to stablecoin. We use stablecoins because the, there is no volatility. You are not going to lose money if you send your money tomorrow. Um, and so once you do the exchange, you kind of transfer the money and the person who receives it can either keep the money in stablecoins or exchange it to fiat uh, and use it in their local local setting. And so we have figured, we have implemented the, the mid part, which is, you know, this once the you have your stablecoin, you can send it to someone else around the globe. And we haven't worked out the on-ramping and off-ramping. That's that's what we're working on right now. And so for us, it didn't make sense to go to people who are used to sending money to family and relatives uh, around the globe and be like, hey, can you use this app? Because the essential part that they need was not implemented yet. So we instead focused on the group that was already in the crypto space. And, I want, and we wanted to kind of get a feedback on, on from them to see how better we perform when we were compared to other products. And so once we knew that we were targeting, it was easy because, I mean, today with social media, we have a waiting list that we're growing. So we reached out to them. We are in different communities. We kind of tell them, hey, we're building this. If you're up for it, would love would love your feedback. And we schedule a call with them. Um, and then during the test session, we have, we have a kind of like a ritual that we do, which is first we give them a pre-test survey to fill. Um, that helps us to gather some information. Uh, so it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative analysis. So we kind of first um, get some information on their backgrounds, their experience with crypto, what wallets they have used, what kind of like their feedback was so far. Um, then we do the actual usability testing. We do screen recording for this. Uh, we ask them questions, set of questions we want to ask. And we also improvise on, on kind of like on the go if a topic comes up. That's the qualitative part. And once we're done with that, we give them a post-test survey to fill, which is uh, trying to get gather some quantitative uh, data again on, on our product. And so um, it's it's a good practice to kind of remind you that, uh, first, of, you, first of all, we don't know a lot of answers to a lot of questions. We need to find out. That's our job to find out the answers. And then the second thing is a lot of customers want to be really helpful. So they may give you feedback over like they may give you over excessive feedback or try to feedback every point. And I think another skill is to kind of knowing when to zoom out and when to zoom in on problems and uh, the feedback you gather. And so once you gather all of those things, once you have the recorded uh, material and we always ask them upfront, like we, there's nothing we, we hide. We're like, can, are you okay with the, with us recording this, this session? Because it will help us to kind of focus on the questions rather than writing stuff down. And so far, everyone has been okay with that. So I think being very transparent with the, with your testers and um, gathering the feedback you can, resisting the urge to kind of try to convince them or tell them something and let them talk, let them do the talking, understanding that you're still in the alpha, your product does not look very, very good. It's gone, it look, it's, it works, but it's, you know, there is a lot of room for improvement and that's fine. And I think um, taking all of that package into account and then you know doing your test, Staying calm throughout, and then once you have that, jumping into into the results and trying to figure out what you should do next is is key. Yeah, and uh, unless unless it's too kind of you know um, how do I put it, uh, company intelligence or you know think, you know this is competitive. What's the what's the longer term vision for the company? Where do you see yourselves in ten years? Let's say. Um, I think. For us, it's if you look at the blockchain ecosystem right now, there are 300 million wallets. Only two and a half million wallets are active. 
20 active wallets mean, means like wallets that are doing transactions that are active in the system ecosystem. And so I, what that tells us is that less than 1% of the wallets in the blockchain world are active wallets. That tells us that it's, it's you know, they haven't, the people haven't figured out how to make usable wallets yet. And some of that is because of user experience. But I think personally, I think some of it is also because of lack of use cases for the general public out there, which are going to come, but it's going to take a while. Um, so there is a lot of room for growth there. Um, if you look at the world, there are about like 2 billion people who have a smartphone, but don't have access to banking solutions. Um, they have a smartphone, they should have access, but they don't. And so with, with what we are doing, we would be able to kind of serve those people as well, give them access to a lot of financial services that they don't have at the moment. Um, and then we are at the verge of entering a very new world, which is the Web3 world. Uh, a lot of things are going to be different. And uh, as we said earlier, wallets are going to be your gateway to that world. And um, that means that your wallet is going to be your identity, basically, in the Web3 world. And as such, financial services like loans, tokenized real estate, uh, transfers, et cetera, all of these are going to be part of it. Uh, but also digital proofs like NFTs you've probably heard of. Um, a lot. Your identity is like going to be probably going to live on chain. It's going to be in your wallet. Uh, and so um, your KYC, KYX processes in future probably will be done with your wallet. And so a lot of those are just showing us how many possibilities there are. And for us as Portal, is, is our vision short-term and long-term is staying close to the customer making sure that we implement use cases that add actual value not just you know some uh, vanity metrics um and then once we do that trying to be the default platform that people trust and go to to enter this web3 world um and where that will take us we'll see yeah i see that's interesting and uh, now having uh, you know had these uh, you know you come from a lot of experience, both of you have a lot of experience. What has been like looking back when it comes to <clears throat> at this stage of the company, product market fit, experimentation, validation, what would your uh, general advice be to other founders that are crossing the same path, so to say, at this point? Any any insights, best practices that you would like to share? Mike, go ahead and then I'll add mine. Oh, I, I, think, I think I already did mine, which is just go out to customers as soon as possible. Um, it's always been, uh, having been in tech for more than 20 years, um, the moment you show a product to customers is the moment you actually start getting um, real feedback. Um, so it's almost like before you've reached customers, your goal is to reach customers. Um, uh, anything you think yourself about how a product will be used um, is probably less accurate. You in fact, it's undoubtedly less accurate than what a customer thinks. Um, I was lucky in my 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 uh, previous business. Um, I hacked on something for six weeks, released it, and you know um, that I wouldn't say it was a finished perfect product, but it was able to get me real feedback from users. Um, it would occasionally do things like email me a message that I should panic about and then, you know, work on some manual process that I hadn't finished coding yet. Um, but it was really beneficial um, to have gotten something out to customers quickly. With Portal, it's a wallet. So there's a little bit more trust involved and there's a uh, probably a greater expectation of polish because you are handling money. Um, 
but uh, you know the same thing like having a rigorous um, alpha testing has been incredibly valuable for us um, in terms of shaping the product and making sure we make something that people want. Yeah, I, I think just seconding all of that that Mike said, um, for me personally, I don't think that you can theoretically prepare for a startup life. I just don't think it's 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 possible. Um, and the reason why it's possible, it's not possible, in my opinion, is that ev like our education system is based on a model of the world that is is much simpler than the actual world out there. So it's great to kind of listen to the journey of other people, but I don't think you can you can sit and go through slides and figure out what the startup life is going to be. Uh, so for what I would, would kind of like I learned is that easiest way is to kind of like jump with both feet in the very cold water. And then, and then remind yourself to be calm and take a long breath and kind of like calm down and try to figure out how you're going to get out of it. And, and that's, I think, the biggest, biggest uh, learning so far. And then the second thing is, um, it was per it's a personal thing. I used to, you know, in university, everything is a bit simpler than in real life. And so um, I remember early days when we were, when we were talking to, to uh, investors and uh, to people who we wanted to them to invest. We were very, very like we, we would get disheartened if, if a rejection would happen. And uh, and I think as you go along, it's like you kind of uh, get used to the fact that not everyone is going to say yes to you and you just move on to the next prospect. And so I think that was a learning that once internalized made a lot of the stress go away because you're like, it's, it's OK, it's natural, like rejections do happen and you kind of like move on to the next pro prospect. Um, I think just being mentally prepared for this stuff uh, and not being afraid to to kind of figure things on the go is uh, figure things out on the go is, is has been very, very important lessons that I have personally learned. Yeah, <clears throat> I see. Just just I'm going to I'm going to ask this as a kind of a advice to myself here from you guys. Uh, you know, you're building a financial tool and uh, we're kind of on the same uh, on the on the same path here on our side. How important. <laughs> From your user testing experience and the feedback that you have received so far, how how high would you rate safety of the product and credibility, so to say, from the user's feedback? Is it uh, for them? Is this user experience meaning this is just easy, convenient, fast, cheap, or do you do you have a sense that you know credibility and safety of the solution is like top three? But like it's there is no I, I don't think you can kind of exclude it's like um, people are very nervous about their money. And uh, yeah. one of the reasons why we think blockchain technology has not kind of like reached mass adoption yet is that a lot of people had very bad experiences with, with, with crypto. And uh, some of that was credited to uh, them trying to send money to someone they knew and the money getting lost. Uh, and you don't you don't ever get that money back. It's like no one is going to send it back to you. And. Uh, and maybe you just send it to kind of like into the eater, like it's just gone. And and so um, safety has been has been the kind of like cornerstone of what we're building on. That's why we have our identity token to make sure that people do not lose money using our uh, our our product that we're creating. Um, do not lose money using Portal because it's very hard to convince com someone to come back and use your services again if they have lost some money with you. And so. Um, in order for us to kind of reach product market fit, to reach a, a place where people trust us, I think safety has been our number one concern from day one. Um, and then obviously the other things that you mentioned, like usability and, and smoothness of the experience, those are those are definitely as important, but safety is like non-negotiable. Yeah. 
Okay, I see. I see. And let's talk about the most fun part of being a startup, and that's fundraising, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, how does you know? It's just, you know, I'm, I'm making a joke out of it because it is time consuming. It is not fun. I mean, it is fun when you share the mission and all of that stuff, of course. But you know, it's not fun when uh, not everyone is as excited as you are, of course. Um, what would your suggestion be to others how to approach this to kind of, uh, I, I got a sense of the, uh, some hints from, from, uh, you guys a bit earlier, but yeah, how, how would you advise people to approach this? Yeah. Um, I think so a few things like, first of all, be clear in your messaging. I think that's the most important thing. It took us a while to get to our tagline, which is instant global transfers for less than a pay- penny, uh, which kind of resonates with everyone would tell them it used to be much longer sentence uh, you know people would look at us weirdly like what are you building so i think get clear on the messaging of what you're building that's the first thing uh second thing that we did wrong in the early days is that we we were building and we were raising at the same time which is which is um you know if you have a kim- campaign and you do those things parallel and you have the time to do those things in parallel it's great if you are kind of like you have an open-ended process where you're doing both things, it's not so good. And so um, I, I was fortunate enough to kind of reconnect with a fellow from university who helped me kind of, uh, she has raised a couple of rounds. And so she kind of helped me to get, get into the right mindset of raising. And that is approaching raising as a campaign, uh, kind of like taking the time to prepare for that campaign. Uh, it can take even up to two months, three months to prepare for it before you start the raising process. And then time box the raising within like two months. Like you're gonna raise for the next two months once you reach that milestone. Um, and then and then you kind of approach it just like that. So when you start off, you kind of Google through. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of non-sexy work. Like you have to sit, go to 200, 300 websites, some of them lack information. You have to go to other sources to get the information. Like it's a very, very ugly work and it's not really fun, um, but it helps you in, in some ways because first of all, you identify um, funds or VCs that could be interested in your product. You see what products they have invest, invested in and it kind of helps you with your competitive research, research of the competitive landscape, which is a bi- nice byproduct. I think we identified 30 more competitors just by doing VC search. Um, and... I think um, what it also does is you kind of, you have to approach, as I said, like approach as a campaign and then you have your database, you create a database of the of all the people you want to talk to, you prioritize them, you kind of Google through to see who you, you need to reach out to um, and then try to find people in your network who would be happy to connect you with those people. And so I, before when I heard that fundraising was a full-time job, I didn't really believe it, but just going through this kind of like campaign man- mindset right now is like, it is really a full-time job. It's, it's a lot of preparation. You have to follow up with a lot of people. You have to be okay with not receiving answers and keep pushing, keep going to the next prospect. And uh, we are in the midst of it right now. So uh, we have started, we, we plan to raise in the second half of January. And uh, I think we're in the week three of the process right now, of kind of like setting the campaign up right and then, and then approaching it. It's, it's, a, it's a hard job. It's, it's not fun, but it's necessary. It's just a survival people you need to take. And there is no silver bullet. Like it's really, you have to go through it yourself. Yeah, yeah, I see. Is there, is there any other advice how to make sure people come? But the most fun about, about it is obviously when people um, don't answer, right? Uh, <laughs> or take too too long of a time. Any any advice yeah. on that? How to kind of facilitate the decision making, or is it you just let that you let that you know? No, no. You. I mean, this is. I'm literally giving you the advice I got yesterday from the fellow fellow uh, entrepreneur who helps me. Is like um, you have to 
if you write to someone and they don't respond, you kind of have to give it another shot, maybe three, three days later, four days later. If they still don't respond, you give it another shot in a week. Uh, if they still don't respond, you give it another shot in the 10 days. And then, you know, after giving four or five shots, and if they still do not answer, then probably it's not, you, you need to move on. But uh, giving up on the first try is probably the worst thing you can do because, uh, I mean, you have to also understand their perspective. They are getting a lot of pitches, a lot of emails, and they make, they have to make kind of like very high quality decisions within a short uh, time frame. And um, sitting in their position, kind of being seeing everything from their perspective is like, okay, uh, who am I going to talk to? The person who never again contacted me because I didn't say hi, or the person who's kind of trying to push because they're building something valuable. And I think it may be hard from a personal perspective to, you know, it's kind of like going out and you want to ask someone out and they don't want to come and you're like, okay, I'm going to ask you again. And then I'm going to ask you again. And then I'm going to kind of like, in the in the non-startup world, it may come up as stalking and creepy, but I think in the startup world, you have to you have to understand that it's really objective. You have to do it. Yeah, I'm tempted to do a tagline out of this uh, for the podcast intro, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> um, and I mean, you mentioned. I mean, uh, I, I think this is great. Uh, we never had a, such a discussion of fundraising process, so I think it's very I think it's very helpful. I never come across like four or five tries. Uh, which is uh, which is useful. Um, one additional thing, though, on this: how much uh, you you mentioned a bit, but uh, how much due diligence do you do on people? Where that you know where people come from, their backgrounds, who you take money from, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so it's I think it's different levels. You don't want to go full on due diligence on everyone from day one, um, just as the VCs don't do that to founders. It's like an intro call and then you have another call with a couple of more senior people and then you have due diligence call. It's like you need to kind of approach it, in my opinion, in the same way. Um, so we, um, from the from the website of the VC, when you're on their website, usually you kind of get, they have a lot of text on what they believe in, what their values are. And so if you see something that is red flag right there, it's like, okay, you can just exclude them from the list. Oftentimes it's not because it's very generic text. You know, it's like, all of us are trying to save the planet together. And so it's, um, you, they all pass that test. And then um, I think it's, once you get into intro call, once you get into conversation with them, I think it's equally important to ask them things like, why are they interested in investing in your product? Uh, what do they believe about the ecosystem that you're building? Um, and so I think, and then kind of like paying attention to communication as well is, is key because um, you want, it, it's a bi-directional street. Like you're not taking money on your slave to the VC. It's like you want the VC to be there equally with you. And, um, and I think that's super important for founder. It's, it's a hard thing to accept because as a first time founder, you may not be in great position to, to kind of approach it that way. But it's it's very important because you're in it for the long with these people. And um, what we usually do is we ask them like questions like, okay, can we talk to a founder from your portfolio? And we want to see like what their experience was with you. And if if they do not want you to talk to a founder from their portfolio, that's probably a red flag. You don't want to really continue talking to them, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, just asking questions always helps. Like it doesn't matter if it's customer, VC, your partner, co-founder, whatever it is, like asking questions really help. Um, and yeah. And I think that that should be enough to to know. And you don't want to do everything from day one. Uh, if you kind of figure out the database of VCs you want to talk with, um, you try to find your connectors to these people, you cold email the rest that you haven't got a chance to talk with, or you don't have any connections in between. Uh, and those that respond, I think then you really need to kind of get into uh, more in-depth due diligence. That's going to save you a lot of time. 
Uh, otherwise, every VC research is probably going to take two hours to kind of conclude. And in um, the early days, you don't want to spend two hours if you're looking up uh, 400 VCs, for instance. Yeah, I see. And now, I'm guessing you have uh, had some kind of um, gone through a bit of what we have in Armenia with regard to VC funds and angel networks. Uh, yeah. wh what has been your perception here? Uh, do, do people here invest in blockchain or do we need a, v a blockchain oriented VC fund at this point? Mm -hmm. What would you say? Uh, as far as I know, I think there are few, I think three to four or maybe even a little bit more blockchain companies in Armenia. So I do think people invest in, in blockchain companies. Um, uh, I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't know if we need an, an exclusive VC fund. I think we do need an exclusive VC fund, but I think it's equally important who's that, who's leading that fund, like who's at the, as, at the head of, of the thing. Because with blockchain, with crypto, there is just a lot of noise out there and um, understanding the technology in itself is novel. Like just, it's, it's really amazing technology. You can do a lot of amazing things with it. Um, we do not believe that speculation is a big part of those amazing things that you can do, um, which is what kind of blockchain and crypto has been popularized by in the next in the last months. And there have been a lot of bad media, like bad reports coming out about a lot of different companies recently, FTX, BlockFi. Um, what you're going to realize is that none of that is blockchain's fault. Uh, it's a lot of centralized authorities in the middle uh, who were put to be trusted with a lot of funds and, and they are the people who weren't very careful with it. And so I think um, the person, if we're going to have a VC, a blockchain VC fund, uh, great to have it, um, but the person who's heading it should, should know what blockchain is uh, and ideally should be able to see through the noise, um, which is like, okay, how can we actually apply this technology in a way that adds value to the people, adds value to the planet and not be super amazed by different vanity metrics that we can have, which is, you know, at the moment, like NFTs, both of us, both Mike and I own NFTs, we own digital art, uh, and I think that's a great use case. Um, but there's just so much more that you can do with NFTs, and we don't think that if you kind of find out what you can do with NFTs, necessarily the digital art is going to be at the top, uh, kind of like trading art or investing in art is going to be the first first use case of it. And so I think education is super important. Um, best case, the person plays around with the technology themselves, knows what they can be, what can be built and, and kind of like constantly learning, I think is, is key. Yeah, I see. I see. And uh, <clears throat> I guess we, we've all come across this uh, abbreviation SBF too many times in this couple of <laughs> Last week, I'll let, I'll let Mike take this one. This is Mike's <laughs> favorite topic. <laughs> no, no, we, we can we can skip that. Um, yeah, let's talk a bit about you know personal learning. That you, you mentioned that just uh, just now. I actually, I've got yeah, regarding go ahead, um, SPF. I, I think it's um, uh, it's an interesting time right now for crypto. Um, as Vahe was saying earlier, um, there's been a lot of um, focus on speculation. Um, and we're kind of part of one of the things we did, um, which all founders should do before they kind of write any code is, you know, um, investigate the entire competitive landscape. So we were at, um, when we, when we moved away from looking at like web three social networks and started looking at wallets, we got on the beta programs of every upcoming wallet on the busiest blockchain and used all their tech and, um, Every single one of them opened up with a screen that went red or green um, with an update on how much your bag of crypto, your your you know, the, the coins you're speculating on, grew or shrunk that day. Um, 
so really like a lot of these uh, you know like I don't think that speculation is the right thing for regular people um, I think the risk profile isn't adequate I don't think that like that speculation and high-risk products and leverage products are um, the way that crypto is going to become mainstream I think the things that crypto have had success in so far, it's been very good as digital gold. People just holding on to Bitcoin as a store of value that's much easier than holding on to literal gold bricks. Um, art uh, has become something recently, obviously with you know digital art NFTs. Uh, we're pushing heavily into money transfer because we think that's a naturally really good fit um, for crypto. And identity has always been a good fit for cryptography crypto and needs to be better handled on the blockchain. Um, but yeah, it's like we looked at our competitors and some of them are talking about like getting, they're going to get regular people into DeFi by helping them use like um, highly leveraged products. Um, and that might be appealing to regular people because of the potential rewards from that. But the risk is mind-blowing um in the uk we've had a lot of situations outside of crypto with um things like spread betting and cfds that inevitably don't work out very well for the people who participate um so even though there's a lot a lot of cynicism about like blockchain and crypto right now i'm i think both of us are kind of enjoying the fact that people are actually saying let's take a step back from speculating on cryptocurrencies um let's look at the real value this technology can provide um, rather than just invest in crypto. Why? Because other people are investing in crypto. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't, that's not something that we're about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, people started talking about transfers at the onset of blockchain. So I don't know what happened in between, but I don't know, yeah. 2013 and <laughs> yeah. now. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's funny. You yeah, know, I, I know what I'm doing with crypto. I've even gone to send somebody money and I've pasted in my own address accidentally. And I've, I've have a transaction where I've gone and sent money through to myself and it's actually gone through, but it's, um, it, uh, I actually have to write code to handle it because it's an exception on my own account. Um, but yeah, I think, um, so many of these products have really been unforgiving of users and they haven't had that kind of user focus that my co-founder yeah. and I have. So. I mean, we're we're circling the hour here, so uh, taking too much of your time. Let, let's do a, um, another question here on uh, personal learning and development. I mean, mm -hmm. um, books, blogs, media. What have you guys found useful for yourselves, and uh, what what has worked, and what have, would you advise others? So, any approaches here? Yeah, I mean, uh, all of the above. This option B, all of the <laughs> above that you mentioned, yeah. is I think. Um, I think um, we both like read books. We both listen to podcasts, blogs. We read on the internet as well. Um, but I think the biggest learning really comes from from trying to do it yourself. Um, and then everything you like, you're never going to remember everything you read in a book. It's just like there are some aha moments when you read and those things are probably going to stick with you. But everything else is like you're going to forget in a, in a couple of weeks. And so I think constant reading constant keeping like listening to podcasts being at the forefront of things i think those things help but you can never bet only on those things and as soon as you start uh, the better for you you're going to learn far more from your customer you're going to learn far more from trying to make something happen like just uh, mike and i we had we had a bug lately and we just trying to 
fix that bug. It teaches us a lot of things about things that need to be fixed. Uh, and so uh, we're even, you know, Mike is coming up with ways we can contribute to the community and make sure that other people don't face the same issue or they, they find the solution much faster. And I think those things you can never, they can never be taught in a book. They can never be taught in, in any kind of blog post. But personally for me, I think um, just one of the eye-opening moments in my life was when I started, I've, I, I've done, like, as I mentioned, finance information management, and we did a lot of slides and a lot of, like, you know, MBA stuff in there. Um, but none of those things were as helpful as just listening to podcasts of people who have actually done this stuff and and kind of uh, listening to to what they went through. I, I listened to um, the the podcast with Reed Hastings, and I think it was the in a conversation with Reed Hoffman um, talking about the journey of the Netflix uh, and and how what problems they face, when did they manage to scale, why did they scale, why did they not scale early on, and so on and so forth. And I think all of those things, just seeing, giving like pure scenarios that really happen and, and how people made decisions um, and listening from that, I think for me has been the biggest learning experience. And then I was fortunate enough to, I think a couple of years ago, I was at an event in Germany and um, Drew Houston from Dropbox was talking. And when you, you know, when you look at it from the outside, you look at a successful startup, uh, you kind of feel like, oh, this person needs to be, you know, extremely genius and a lot of things need to work in their favor. And all of those things are true. But once you actually sit down and, and hear them talk, you see that it's, it has been a very long process getting to the place they are. Um, and they, they went through a lot, of, a lot of things that you go through as well as a founder. And so um, that has been one of, the, one of the other learnings is that, you know, once you start the process, you know, it's a very lengthy process and there are a lot of ups and downs. Uh, and is not as easy or as cool as it would have seemed from the outside. And and internalizing that and understanding that that's part of the process has been a huge help for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I found actually I found Twitter very uh, podcasts are really really good as well. I found, uh, but I also found that Twitter has been really helpful. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, and and newsletters. There's a lot of stuff that. Uh, you don't find in books, uh, especially on personal development. And hundred percent, this this stuff has been really, really good. Some some people. Yeah, I mean Twitter. I can give you an example. Uh, it's yeah. like Twitter. We, uh, I'm, I, I, I have been part of Twitter since 2012, but I have just started using it after Portal. Uh, and so Mike is is an expert Twitter user. He can give you probably every every trick there is for Twitter. But uh, for me, it's like. Just seeing, you know, I, I found a thread with a lot of VCs who are open to cold intros. And I think um, just bookmarking that thread and keeping it so that I can integrate that into our database has been, has been such a huge help because uh, that, that's the part that I said, you know, you can, you can really, uh, instead of doing all the research yourself, you can ask questions. And that Twitter is a great place to either ask questions or find answers to your questions. Um, and I agree with you 100%. Like those things save you a lot of time in, in doing the manual work on your own. Yeah, I think yeah, for I, me, um, yeah, please go. Uh, uh, like Vahe, uh, listening to stories from other co-founders, um, and especially the things that you are successful now, and hearing about like the worst moments of other people's journeys. Um, really, like when things are tough, kind of knowing that other people have been through this process. Um, and to add to that, I also say um, self-awareness has been a really good skill um, that I think I've gotten better at over time. So. Knowing if I'm tired, um, knowing how to ask for help. I think I'm uh, top 0.07% on Stack Overflow. Sometimes it's from asking questions. Sometimes it's from answers. But a lot of the time, it's from asking questions. Um, and being um, 
being good at asking questions is um has been a super helpful uh for me as a founder um and there's often times where uh i've something has been taking longer than i should have uh, longer than it should have and i've reached out to somebody else and it turns out my perception of the problem is not correct um and that becomes the key to be able to move forward as an engineer is to um yeah be able to uh sometimes reach outside yourself um and uh rather than just grinding on on something forever which i think is the tendency of a lot of engineers as well so yeah definitely knowing when to talk to other people feeling comfortable asking for help knowing when you're tired all those things yeah yeah i seconding the point on asking other founders like not only successful founders but We've been uh, we've been in a couple of Solana events uh, where the Solana community comes together, all of the founders that are founding companies and are solving problems. And you would be surprised how open people are to helping you and um, just connecting with that community, uh, being helpful, but also seeking help. I think that's one of the best, best, best things you can do early on. Yeah, actually, Twitter, um, by the way, like maybe another example, literally last week. Um, I uh, I purchased something at retail using uh, at one of the Solana spaces, and I got talking to the company that makes the point of sale solution, and uh, just on Twitter, and said, "Hey, if I was able, how what would I need to do to be able to uh, show the receipt for this purchase right inside Portal's wallet?" And we kind of had a discussion back and forth about different ways we could do it in a way that would preserve user privacy. So I'm purchasing things on the blockchain, but people can't see what specifically I'm purchasing. And then we found a way of doing it. And as of today, um, you can look through, when you purchase something uh, in a physical space using Portal, you'll actually see the receipt breaking down the items you actually purchased in that transaction. Uh, it took about two days worth of work, but it wouldn't have happened if I, unless I'd actually felt comfortable reaching out to somebody over Twitter and just um, having a good conversation. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I, I've uh, asked uh, asked for help from Alexis Ohania recently, still waiting for a reply, but it seems to be working, <laughs> <have> to. <laughs> working much better for you guys. Uh, but on the matter, you, you mentioned that VC thread. What's the VC thread, Vahe, you mentioned that you can kind of reach out with cold called emails too? Yeah, so uh, so I can I can share that uh, with you. It's um, I think I've bookmarked it. Uh, it's, yeah, okay, it's, think, okay. I'll I'll yeah. share it afterwards. Then. Cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, th this was really lovely, and I'll, I'll I'll promise this is the last question for me for today at least. Uh, let's talk a bit about personal development, social skills, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Any any kind of intrapersonal traits uh, that you you would advise other founders to develop as early as possible. I mean, this is the stuff again, you don't uh, read in books or universities yeah. or MBA classes for that matter. Uh, what do you think? Anything that you would advise people here? Listening. Listening, I think is the biggest skill you can master early on. The, the sooner you master that, the easier everything is going to be for you. Um, being able to listen to customers, being able to listen to your co-founder um, before you jump into saying stuff or asking questions. Um, I think I think that's a super super valuable skill to have um, from my point of view. I'll I'll share more if I if I can. There are a lot of those things, but I think on top of my list is just being a good listener. Okay, Mike, how about you? I think almost the same. I think when I kind of began my career as an engineer, I was probably a little bit worried. I had a, a bit of imposter syndrome, 
So I think I used to try and talk too much and show off my knowledge. And I would actually totally agree with Fahey that I think listening more and talking less has actually been very valuable to me. Yeah. And and to add to that, I think the other thing is um, it's, it's trying to kind of accept yourself with your limitations, all of those. Like you are not a one-man army. You, you are good at some stuff, not so good at other stuff. Um, and understanding that you can be right, but you can also be wrong. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about making something that is useful. And um, I think the listening kicks in there is like, okay, you know, if you're a good listener, you're going to figure out what is useful and what is not. And that would be my, my two cents to the question. This was so much fun, guys. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think we broke the record of the longest podcast <laughs> session, but it was, it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. I think there was a huge amount of valuable stuff here. Uh, thanks a lot, Vahe. Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, I'm sure we'll be in touch um, onwards. Uh, wish you great success, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be hearing it myself soon, I, uh, I'm sure. But we'll be in touch. Thanks, thanks Samson. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Samson.